University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. In North Carolina, one of the big grocery store chains is Lowe's Food, not to be confused with Lowe's Hardware, though I think you can get some chips and things like that from Lowe's Hardware. A few years back, they went through this drastic remodeling of their stores. Of course, they changed the look and feel of, of how the store is, but also they changed one thing you weren't expecting, the smell inside. You see, they hired a former Disney exec who had some tricks up his sleeves from the Magic Kingdom to introduce them to this remodeling. Certain times of the day, you might walk through the store and you might be greeted through the smell of fresh-baked cookies. Other times, it might be a rotisserie chicken. Other times, it might be a fresh pie. And they weren't using air fresheners. No, what they actually did was they installed the main air condition intake in the baking section of the store. So allowing this free, uh, fresh and amazing smells to be wafted throughout the rest of the store. It's an innovative form of hospitality that makes you feel at home and hungry at the same time. They're, they're cultivating into something called sensory memory, helping you remember where you were and who you were with when you smelled certain smells. And when you stop and think about it, they're not doing anything overwhelmingly difficult, but it's a small thing that makes a tremendous difference. We're, we're in our series, The Little Big Things, how shared spirit-led commitment drives oversized results. And we're looking at, more often than not, the difference between thriving and floundering within churches is, is whether or not the church can commit to small things that make an incredible difference. We're examining the book of Acts, who hosts this overarching theme throughout the book in which it says over and over again that the church grew in numbers. So for this, we take a look at the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 17. But before we get to our scripture, let me set the very important context of this passage. If you've ever done any reading of the Old Testament, then you know there's a tremendous number of religious laws within the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, most, most of us typically know the Ten Commandments by heart. Take, for example, the Fourth Commandment to keep the Sabbath day, that's holiness and rest. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, the religious leaders had created over 39 different categories of laws just about the Sabbath alone. Yes, there's rules about what you can wear on the Sabbath and how long your beard should be. And there's laws that, that can and cannot, uh, about things that you can and cannot eat within the, the Old Testament. I've told you before, according to the law of Moses, most of us South Louisianians are an abomination since we eat crawfish. <laughs> Leviticus 11 says that we uh, ought to restrict ourselves from eating creatures uh, without fins and scales. The most famous animal uh, the ancient Hebrews didn't eat was pork. And as comedian Jim Gaffigan joked, clearly the person that wrote that law into existence never smelled fried bacon because I'm 1,000% sure they would have not added that to the no-no list. The Hebrew people in Jesus' day not only had strong feelings about the food on the no-no list, but also about the people who ate food from the naughty list. Just read a few passages in the Gospels, and you'll have a quick understanding of how the Jews felt about the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and the Samaritans. They were wicked, unrighteous, impure, and scandalous sinners 
detestably eating the things that God had called an abomination. I don't know your feelings on such matters, but it feels rather disappointing that something intended to inspire people to pursue a certain type of holiness was quickly turned into another way of othering. Are you familiar with that term, othering? Othering is an any action by which an individual or group becomes mentally classified in somebody's mind as not one of us. You're not part of us. You're something wholly other than us. Rather than always remembering that every person is a complex bundle of emotions and ideas and motivations and reflexes and priorities and many other subtle aspects, it sometimes is easier to dismiss someone else as less than human as less worthy of respect and dignity than we are. Othering is not about liking or disliking someone. It's based on the conscious and unconscious assumption that certain identified groups pose a threat to the favored group. It often passes as religious piety, thinking of those people who make those bad decisions, living in those sinful lifestyles, dressing in that kind of way, doing those kinds of things. In Jesus' day, the Jews despised the Samaritans who were considered to be half-breeds. Don't you recall that passage where the disciples asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven to burn up that Samaritan village? Read Jesus' harsh rebuke in Luke chapter 9. You see, throughout history, all cultures, one people group has demeaned and discriminated and self-righteously looked down upon others. Othering, without realizing it, and sometimes with realizing it, typically leads to classism and sexism and racism and discrimination and homophobia and xenophobia and misogyny and ageism. When done by religious people, especially Christians, there's a drawing of a border, a a guarding of who's in and who's out, who's welcome and who's not, who's accepted and who's not. And at the heart of othering, is a lack of familiarity and fear, which prevents us from welcoming others. All of us are accustomed to a certain way of life, certain way of, of dressing, certain patterns of the, that life we think should go by, certain ways that, that family should look, certain ways of voting, certain ways of spending money, certain ways of believing. And, and when we encounter someone that is radically goes against what we are accustomed to in our life, our brains don't know what to do with it. There's a psychological term for this. It's called cognitive bias. All of us have it, and, and we don't realize it. Brain science tells us that, uh, has, answers a lot of the questions about this. The bio- biological challenge is the way that we are wired to, wired to recognize and process familiar people and familiar situations. From, that happens from the time we are youth. In fact, all adults, it only takes uh, 200 milliseconds to register whether a face or a situation is familiar to us or not. And the body's often natural response to things that are unfamiliar are to feel threatened and afraid of it. There's a difference between uh, not accepting those that are unfamiliar and those who are familiar. And, and when our brains are in unfamiliar territory with, with people or certain situations in life, then we make a subconscious choice to either reject or accept, to include or to exclude to feel safe, or to feel fear. And we live in a world driven by fear. We're told to fear the unknown, to 
fear people we don't understand, to fear things that are out of our control, to fear people we are told to fear. We fear circumstances that might take away from our comfort and our security and what we believe to be our humanity. We are sold on fear by cable news outlets that make billions of dollars a year selling us a narrative to be scared of these people, be suspicious of those people, only to trust those that look and to think like you. So this is the exact place the, the Apostle Peter finds himself in Acts chapter 10. We first learn of a man named Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, so a pagan Gentile in the eyes of the Jews, including Jesus' followers. At first glimpse, we might expect him to be a villain, and yet we already know that Luke's centurions are unlikely to be faithful believers of the power of Jesus' wields. We learn this in the narrative of the Gospels, that, that even centurions have faith in Christ. But an angel instructs Cornelius in a clear vision to send for a man named Peter. And Cornelius obeys without hesitation. His faithfulness is on full display. And the next day, Peter too catches a clear vision. Peter finds himself hungry in midday, and as he's waiting for his food to be prepared, he falls into a trance, the book of Acts says. And he sees a vision more confounding than, than the clear instructions Cornelius receives. Peter sees sheets upon which all kinds of animals were to be found. Three times the voice instructs Peter to kill and to eat. Three times Peter refuses the instruction, for he has never eaten anything, quote, unclean or profane. Peter is puzzled by all these strange visions he's happening, and it says in verse 17, he awakes and this is what happens. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found him where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who is known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking on the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is righteous and God-fearing man who respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guest. The writer of Acts proceeds to tell us that Peter is faithful to the Holy Spirit's leadership, going to Cornelius' house. There, Peter meets with this man who is so clearly an outsider to Peter. And yet, overcome by the Holy Spirit, Peter recognizes this man deserving of receiving the radical hospitality and love of Jesus. Peter not only leads Cornelius to Jesus, but he also leads his entire family and servants. Verse, 20, uh, verse 48 says, So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. You see, the socio-religious and political implications of this text cannot be missed. Peter's choice to be open to what the Holy Spirit was doing, to truly live out the compassion of Jesus, of not only welcoming a foreign stranger, but eating with him in a meal that consisted of things radically different than what his religious, accustomed worldview was telling him to do. And in this moment, we 
have witnessed the walls of religious purity and self-righteousness being torn down for the sake of something far more important, the transformative grace and love of Jesus. But when you really stop and, and consider the ministry of Jesus, then what we see is Peter truly just living it out. Peter teaches us a powerful lesson about the nature of radical hospitality. He's not only welcomed these strangers into his home, but then he went with them to receive this pagan Gentile with inclusion and grace. Peter teaches us that radical hospitality is a byproduct of truly following Jesus. Peter has seen Jesus receive people in, in so many different ways, whether it was the Gentiles or the Samaritans or prostitutes or leprous or sick or religiously unrighteous, the poor, the rich, the insiders and the outsiders. And Peter recognized that he too was received by Jesus even after he betrayed Jesus in his time of dire need, denying that he even knew who Jesus was. And since he had received Jesus' radical hospitality, he knew what it looked and felt like, what it meant and how it changed lives and gives people a sense of God's radical love. Have you experienced God's radiant love? Has it transformed your life? Are you continually experiencing the undeserving love of God through grace when you mess up and fall short? If we truly follow Jesus, then we know the power of God's love and acceptance, taking us into God's family despite who we are and what we've done and, and, and makes a difference in who we are as an individual. And when we have experienced this, we know the power of God's love through radical hospitality, intentionally choosing to follow in the way of Jesus to become the same. After Jesus uttered the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus didn't pause and add commentary to it saying, okay, if that sounds a little too difficult, I'll make sure that some of you can deal with this and some of you can't. To some of you, I'm going to ask you just to love people it's easy to love, and others of you, don't even worry about loving others anyways. Just continue on with your prejudice and suspicion. It's not like I'm going to die for your sake anyways. Radical hospitality is a byproduct of following Jesus. 1 John 4, 8 says, There is no fear in love, for perfect love cast out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. Fear causes us to become disdainful and indifferent about others. Fear wages war against kindness. And if we live in fear, then we are shaping our lives around anxiety and apprehension. If we live in love and humility, then we open our lives up to the creativity of God. And unless we find ways to open ourselves up to others, we will grow even more isolated and frightful. And if we do not find the practice of hospitality, we will grow increasingly hostile towards others. If we bolt our gates and lock our doors and avert our eyes from others, we are forbidding the God who calls us by saying, for I was hungry, thirsty, lonesome, tired, and in prison, and you... For some, this might be such a, a radical statement especially when you begin to think about all the people who are not like us, whether by gender or race or ethnicity or political affiliation or sexuality or other identities. 
I think the root of fear and exclusion is a, is a lack of understanding and belief in God's inclusive love for you personally. It's simple. How can I truly love and create space for others unless I have experienced the profound love and safeness that's found in Christ? Paul describes love in Romans 12 in this way. Love is sincere and good and devoted and zealous and joyful and patient and faithful and blessing. There's no room for fear and pure love. It's been years since I sat down and played video games. Uh, not that I don't want to, <laughs> but something about being a husband and father and pastor, there hasn't been a lot of time to sit down and play games. But when I used to play games, I used to not really enjoy sports games, but I enjoyed what's called role-playing games. Um, you sit down and you're, it's like unlocking puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. And every video game, whether it's the kitty games or the sports games or the role-playing games, all have one thing in common. They all have difficulty levels in the settings. Usually there is a beginner, moderate, hard, or, or expert. So it makes sense that when you're just learning or working through a game for the first time, you put it on the beginner level. But once you have utterly destroyed every foe in the game and received the highest possible score, it's probably time to raise the difficulty level of the game. Anyone can win as a beginner, but it's hard to win as an expert. That takes patience and some learning and some attempts and even some failures. You see, when we hear Jesus talking about being radically hospitable, our minds directly go towards the easiest ways to serve and to love. The beginner's level kind of people, your family, your friends, and maybe even some of your coworkers. We can find easy ways to serve and love those who already love us. That's a piece of cake. I would dare say that we can even do a little serving to those that we despise, though we might do it with clenched teeth and muttered things under our breath. But the problem with sticking with those who are easy to love is Jesus tells us what good is that. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you love those who love you, what good is even that? Even people who do not know God can manage to love who love, love those who love them back. But then Jesus ups the ante. He says in the Gospels, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you, and anyone who takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. See, if we believe that God's love is inclusive, then with no buts, we love people difficultly out of God's abundant love for us. The Greek word for hospitality in the scriptures is philoxenia. It's a combination of two words, phileo and xenos. Phileo is one of the many words in the Greek that's used for love. It's where we get the term brotherly love, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. But then the word xenos is the second part of that word. It actually means stranger or immigrant or foreigner. So the word hospitality literally means to love an immigrant, a stranger, or a foreigner. How fascinating. So if Jesus calls us to love a foreigner, a stranger, an immigrant, how does that fit into our American political Christianity? As if that shouldn't drop a nuclear bomb into our politics, remember 
this fun little word, this altering truth, we are saved by a homeless foreigner. Jesus wasn't a white guy. He was a Middle Eastern, olive-skinned, coarse-haired Jew. What if I told you that hospitality is the answer to our modern-day alienation and injustice? The answer is yes, and yes again. If Jesus' followers took up this cause and call by God to love others in this kind of way, imagine the difference it would make in our world. Instead of seeking to have a voice and be right in everything, we would go to people in silence and service first. Instead of being a people who picket and protest, we would be a people who choose to sit down and to listen and to love. Instead of being a people who love ourselves more than the people we turn a blind eye to, we would choose to welcome the stranger and outcast among us. Jesus didn't just stop there with this radical idea of loving and serving strangers and foreigners and those that see eye to eye with us. Instead, Jesus stretched us a bit further. Jesus, in such a radical way in the gospel, calls us to love our enemies. And not to just love them up here, but he calls us to bless and to serve those that we have disdain for. Those that we don't see eye to eye with. Those that fluster us and agitate us. That's our enemy. Jesus lays out this quality of love that raises the bar so high and seems so unattainable. And yet we are created by God to serve and love others. And it's difficult. And the thing about radical hospitality, this, one of these last lessons we need to learn is that Jesus isn't just calling us to, to live this out in what we do. Instead, Jesus is calling us to be a person of radical hospitality. It's about who we are as individuals. Out of the fifth century, there emerged something new within the still young faith that was known as Christianity. And it came by a man named Benedict, who established a community uh, centered around this thing called a rule. Now, the rule of Benedict was nothing more than a set of ideas to determine the kind of person you will be and the kind of course your life will take. These ideas, this rule was about the way that you lived your life, the choices that you make, the way that you lived each day. And your rule is what makes your life worthwhile. It's an expression of how you spend your time and your energy, what you value most. And the rule of Benedict and his community was this. All guests who present themselves are to be welcome as Christ. For he himself said, I was hungry and you welcomed me. See, for all the monks who gathered within the walls of this community, this was the glue that held their lives together. This is the way that they lived out each day. And to allow this to become the culture of their lives, Benedict had the monks read the Gospels each and every single day. And it's the sacred reading of the text. They're, they're studying not this intellect, but this love they lived out in their life. They began to see how often within the Scriptures, Jesus came and, and welcomed the stranger among him and treated them as equals. And as Benedict wrote, great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims because in them Christ is received. UBC is a faith community that knows a lot about radical hospitality. One of the greatest intangible assets are our people who open their hearts and their lives to others, forging authentic relationships. We, all, uh, have, we have all the right pieces of a church on the brink of 
exponential growth. Great small group ministries, extraordinary commitment from a core membership base, innovative new ministries to reach out to the community, such as the Soccer Academy and the Family Tree Cafe and Mother's Day Out and English Conversations and so much more. We have all the right pieces, and yet we can sometimes miss the moment. We can be ready for thriving and yet miss the opportunity when it's right in front of us. We can have all the right things, but not have the people commit to the reality that each person matters in what they do here. What would it look like for each individual to commit to this type of radical hospitality culture? Not assuming that everyone else will open their hearts and their lives to, to guests and members of this community with the warmth of Christ, but chose to do it themselves. What would it look like if we took Jesus seriously and his calling by inviting new people to experience the extraordinary gift of God's presence through University Baptist Church. And all of this is an assumption that, that people will just come without being invited. So what would it look like if you and I chose to invite five new people a week to our faith community, to make sure that each new and existing person who walks through this door experienced the love of God? Did you know that experts say, whoever those experts might be, that someone decides within 10 seconds of whether or not they're going to come back to your church or not. So before they hear the choir sing, before they hear Kay play the organ, before the sermon is preached, before the dynamic community of this church experience, a guest will choose whether or not they will come back to our church. No pressure, right? But it's about the culture that's felt when people walk into the door. As one theologian put it, we show hospitality to strangers, not merely because they need it, but because we need it too. The stranger at the door is the living symbol and memory that we all are strangers here. This is not our house, our table, our food, our lodging. This is God's house and God's table and God's food and God's lodging. We were pilgrims and wanderers and aliens and strangers even enemies of God. But we too were welcomed into this place. To show hospitality to the stranger is to realize that we are beggars here together. And grace then will surprise us all. For the time of reflection this morning, I'd like us to meditate on a prayer written by Benedict in the fourth century. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, I place myself in your hands and dedicate myself to you. I pledge myself to do your will in all things, to love the Lord with all of my heart and all my soul and strength, and to honor all persons, not to do to another what I would not wish to be done to myself, to relieve the poor, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick, to bury the dead, to help in trouble, to console the sorrowing, to hold myself aloof from the worldly ways, to prefer nothing but the love of Christ, not to give way to anger, not to foster a desire for revenge, not to forsake charity, not to return evil for evil, not to do injury, yea, even bear patiently any injury done to me, to love my enemies, not to curse those who curse me, but rather to bless them. 
to bear persecution for justice' sake. Not to be proud, to avoid idle talk, to hate no one, to pray for my enemies, never to despair of your mercy, O God of mercy. Amen.